Hi everyone, this is Derek Weston from the Food and Faith Podcast. Welcome back for the final of three pilot episodes looking at the lectionary through the lens of climate justice. On this episode, we will be looking at the passages for Easter Sunday. My guests are the Reverend Dr. Garrett Andrew, pastor of Napomo Community Presbyterian Church in Rio Grande, California, Wilson Dickinson, author of The Green Good News and director of continuing education at Lexington Theological Seminary, and Avery Lamb, co-executive director at Creation Justice Ministries. The passages we'll be looking at are Acts 10, 34 to 43, Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, and John 21 to 18. Our first reading is Acts 10, chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So, Avery, where is creation in Acts chapter 10? Yeah, so where I want to start with this question is, you know, probably just good exegetical practice at any moment. But I think especially in a passage like this where, you know, it's the gospel (laughs) <laughs> but also, you know, there's not an immediate apparent connection in these, you know, these what, 10 verses to creation. You know, there's, there's, you know, passing mention of a tree of eating. Of course, that's creation. It's set in creation. But um, I think looking a little bit more broadly to what's happening in the Acts of the Apostles at this moment is going to be really helpful for us. And I think in general is, of course, just good practice when we're reading. So I just want to orient us here to like what's going on. So before Peter gives the sermon, what's happening? And what's happening is in chapter 10, Peter is having the vision of um, the sheet lowering down, the four corners of the sheet coming down. The, you know, we're looking here in, in, uh, in, in verse 12, the, the four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And of course, the voice of God saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter saying, by no means, Lord, I, you know, I won't eat what you have called clean, what you have called profane or unclean. And then God responds saying, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And so the gospel then, you know, fast forward 20 verses, the gospel being presented to the Gentiles by Peter for what is, you know, perhaps the first time that the, the, the apostle is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and including them in this story of forgiveness and including them as, as the people of God. And I think that that, that context has a lot to hold for us for, for how we're seeing creation in this passage. I think the first place to start out here is that what, what we see in, in verse 34, the first line that Peter says to his audience I truly understand that God shows no partiality. You know, 
what is happening here is is an expansion of the the vision of you know the people of god beyond just the jews and you know i think what that could call us to do here today is to think about that expansive vision of oh if god doesn't show partiality you know maybe that's not just limited to humans maybe this is you know true that the gospel of jesus christ is not just good news for jews and for gentiles for all of the people of god but is also good news for all of the creation of god and then reading the sermon from Peter, not only as preaching to the Gentiles who have just been invited into the fold of God, but preaching to the entirety of creation as part of that. So what we have there is, is you, know, you know, perhaps the gospel being revealed for all of creation. But I think what, what's really interesting here is the way that the gospel is revealed to Peter, the gospel being the good news for the Gentiles as well. And the way that that is mediated is through an image of non-human creatures, right? That it's not, uh, it's, it's not even an angel coming down or, or some sort of human-like form coming down and telling Peter to, you know, include these other humans in, you know, in, in the gospel, in your preaching, but it's, birds and reptiles and four-footed creatures you know it's it's mediated through uh through the non-human and it's a lesson that peter is learning not by singularly listening to the voice of god but by understanding how god is moving through interaction with the non-human with the non-human world and with the rest of creation uh and of course that's mediated through the changing in dietary laws and you know we definitely want to get into that a little bit more later um, the final thing I want to touch on here is the, the section after uh, Peter's sermon, which is when he, he asked the question, which is such a beautiful question, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Can anyone withhold the water? And I think that's a compelling question for us today. Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing the world? know can anyone withhold the water for preaching the gospel to the world or you know perhaps inverting that um can anyone withhold the water for us to be baptized by the good news that is revealed in the world can anyone hold back the revelation of god that comes through the non-human world as it came to peter i think on a practical level the answer is yes because there's lots of sin and destruction in the world that is withholding God's revelation. But in perhaps an ultimate or an eschatological level, my hope is that the question is no, that in the end, the, the beneficence and the beauty of God that is revealed through the world, revealed through creation, will create a conversion moment in our hearts in the way that it did for Peter. I couldn't help but think when you read that question, can anyone withhold the water? I'm blanking on his name, but the CEO of Nestle arguing that water is not a human right, that it's that it's a good to be commodified. And and just 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 that that image of God again giving freely and and that what is what is from God and what is of God being given freely as a gift. And what we do as humans is the withholding. For some reason, as Derek, as you read it that time, I got stuck with uh, Peter talking a little bit about Jesus 
how he went around doing good and healing those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And if we're going to talk about like where creation is as well, and I think you, if you, if you take that time to highlight, uh, to saturate the context so that we know where this sermon's happening and going to the high like, whole idea of withholding the water, but uh, those under the power of the devil. Um, and, you know, like we always want to be careful of how we go about utilizing the devil these days because, you know, but um, it's still, let's call some things what they are, demonic. And um, if we can be honest with regards to the way that our culture is participating in the demonic in an effort to not seeing how uh, creation is getting to speak to us or God speaking to us through creation as is evidenced through this, this whole group of animals that come down out of heaven. And how, uh, and even if we're going to play with that notion, how Peter doesn't understand that in the moment. He, uh, he argues with God and, um, and he has to learn. And the beauty of Easter being a part of two, we have to learn in the midst of this whole thing. And thereby learn too where the demonic holds us down. How do we need to be freed by this Easter moment to recognize the living one in the soul in everything? And thereby to make sure that there's no lack of access to these waters that come up at the end. I like just that sense of yeah, freedom from the demonic in the midst of all of this. Uh, and then playing with that very notion, especially if we're going to be uh, on Easter, how we might be. Uh, what was it that Pope John Paul II said? Um, Do not abandon yourselves to despair, for we are an Easter people, and hallelujah is our song. Um, but we still live in a Good Friday world. And, and the recognition here when Peter's doing this is he's still struggling with his own Good Friday world. He has to learn. And, uh, and, and when he's presented with the fullness of the creative order, all these animals that were unclean, um, all these Gentiles that were unclean, all this kind of source that Easter opens up for everybody so that we might actually be together and participate in a vision of reality that is the divine vision, not one where we subjugate the earth and others, but one where we all become one together that it gets to happen through the, the resurrection. Then, uh, yeah, we have to free ourselves from the demonic and get to learn like uh, Peter does. I remember a sermon in seminary that Dr. Park preached on that passage of the animals coming down where his, his idea was a convinced theologian will always beat God in argument. And how do we still find ourselves beating God in an argument when God is breaking into the world in ways that still don't make any sense to us in terms of Easter. And instead of just making Easter a triumph, this passage as Avery describes it, allows Easter to be something where we can observe it under the lenses of the resurrected one and thereby see ways with which we need to help it be ridded of the demonic powers that are destroying the environment and ruining the lives of those who do not have. So Avery, where is God interacting with creation here? I think just building on what Garrett was saying, there's, there's two things that I want to reflect on from this passage. You know, the first one is, the forgiveness of sins uh, you know that we do live in a world that is you know oppressed by the devil but of course these you know like you are reflecting uh, reflecting on the demonic forces are so present in the way that we see them play out through climate catastrophes through disasters through you know extractive capitalism and its effects on both our social and our physical well-being and yet 
right after Peter talks about those who are oppressed by the devil or, or in the midst of it, he is preaching a resurrection hope. And, you know, again, the audience here, I think this language of oppressed by the devil is perhaps so resonant because he's preaching to people who are oppressed by the devil of the Roman empire. And yet he doesn't get caught up on that, that he's preaching the good news that there is forgiveness of sins. And, and what I read this as is, is not just forgiveness of sins for those who are listening to him right there, for those who are in the audience, but forgiveness of sins for the empire. You know, perhaps this possibility that there can be a death and a resurrection for the forces of evil and the forces of the devil in the world. Um, and it is that resurrection hope in the midst of despair that, you know, I think the Easter message can be about for us right now that yes, you know, ecologically we're in the midst of the Good Friday, perhaps Holy Saturday, wherever you wanna situate us there, we are in the darkness. And yet what's to hold us back from preaching the possibility of resurrection in the middle of the darkness? Because we know both from the story of Jesus Christ, as Peter knows, that resurrection is possible, that empire can lynch, can kill, can execute prophets, the son of God on the cross, that empire can destroy and degrade and exploit both the human and the non-human, these beautiful things of our world. But God will still be moving to bring new life, to resurrect, to bring hope, and to forgive the sins of those who have done evil. And I think that, the again, the, the, the contextualization that of, of bringing the creation to the fore and of, of raising the issues of empire, right? And, and so that, so then, you know, creation is not something that stands apart from empire, right? But it's, it's, th these are two issues that are, are in conflict with one another. I, I think helps us also think about sin and salvation in clearer ways and, and the resurrection message in clearer ways here, right? So, so, cause in my head, because of the culture I grew up in, when I hear judge, Right, I think of a juridical context in which individuals are made to, you know, stand for account um, for the ways that they have broken or said to have broken a law. Right, um, and but I think that this kind of recontextualization of you know, so you see this context, this systemic context of oppression, um, and then you you have also built up here that Jesus is the anointed, right? So he's the Christed. Right. The Christ is one who is called for this special task. I even think that probably the, the sense of judge here, like so that, you know, the, the, the judges of the Israelites right, were, were not this individualizing juridical context. Right, The judges were leaders that were lifted up for a situation to do the will of God. Right? So anyway, this, this is a long way of saying, like, I, I feel like bringing this stuff to the fore get some of the Protestant clutter out of here, right? Get some of the kind of atonement clutter out and, and helps me think about what sin is to begin with, but then also what salvation is. And so what the resurrection message of the gospel means. So I mean, so I, I really think that this, but, but also it's, it's just like, you know, it's being a Protestant and reading the, the gospels is always like a, it's like reading a palimpsest for me, right? So there's like all the, 
you know, there's, there's all these layers of interpretation that it's so hard to kind of like quiet down the voices um, mm -hmm. and kind of hear the song. Uh, everywhere is God inviting us to interact with creation? You know, think about this question. I, I, I want to zoom out even further and contextualize more because I love doing that. Um, <laughs> but I, I just want to play around a little bit with like what's happening in the Acts of the Apostles. Obviously here, Peter is preaching the gospel, but it's in the context of post-ascension period where the everything that Jesus did is playing out in a you know a, a post-resurrection post post-ascension world and, and you know this extremely nascent church that is starting to take shape and um I think Acts is it's a very improvisational book I think mm. you know I, I I read this and I think the the apostles are really just kind of playing improv <laughs> with what's going on here that you know, and I think like the yes and of the apostles is really fun to read in here because they're kind of making sense of a institutional and social and political reality that is not what they expected. And that is, you know, maybe not what they wanted. You know, they wanted Jesus to come. They wanted Jesus to, you know, become king, you know, some sort of earthly king. That was the expectation. And obviously that didn't happen because Jesus was, you know, executed by the state and then resurrected. So they're struggling a little bit here with the collapse of their vision. And yet they're saying yes and to that. They're thinking through how they can continue to move forward the message of Jesus Christ and really build a movement around, you know, the, both the person of Jesus, but, the, you know, the beauty and power of Jesus Christ as the son of God you know, part of this improvisation is, um, you know, the invitation of others to join in. And I think that's one of the beauty, you know, for thinking about this in improv, like improv theater is open to anyone. <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of it. And I think that's, that's very much the disposition that the apostles have here. And I think that's an invitation for us as well from God, you know, to, to, to approach the world in an improvisational way to, you know, be open to the messages from God. I think what's remarkable about Peter here is his disposition of openness. You know, initially there's a little bit of reticence where he says, by no means, Lord, for I've not eaten anything that is profane or unclean, but he makes a pretty quick switch. And, you know, he, he, he says yes and pretty quickly to God and then just goes all in. You know, this he goes all in in these verses in this sermon where he's sharing the total beauty of the gospel and inviting wholeheartedly, you know, boldly, if we get back to the who, who can hold back these waters, you know, he's challenging those who might be challenging him. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, he's all in on this. So I think there's, you know, again, there's an invitation to openness, an invitation to being improvisational with how we encounter creation how we encounter the world and, you know, ask the question of, you know, what is God perhaps trying to say in, in my encounter with the world? Um, yeah. The second piece that I just want to note here is, um, you know, this whole sequence is just rich with acts of hospitality. Mm. I mean, Peter's own sermon here is an act of hospitality in itself of, 
obviously inviting the Gentiles, you know, expressing God's hospitality as one who shows no partiality, kind of the ultimate host, the host to all of us, of course, the host to all of creation as well. But there's just particular moments of hospitality, particular practices of hospitality throughout this passage. Um, just to note a couple here, you know, in verse 17, you know, the, the, the men sent by Cornelius are coming. They are, you know, Peter welcomes them in an act of hospitality, but also verses 22 through 23, again, Peter inviting them in and giving them lodging. Verse 30, again, I'll, I'll just name these out. Verse 32, verse 33, verse 48, you know, all of these are, are moments where there are acts of hosting and acts of accepting guests. Um, and I think that hospitality is kind of an, an underappreciated disposition or an underappreciated practice when it comes to creation. Mm. And I think part of that is because our sense of hospitality has become, it's become sort of genteel. It's gotten mixed up in, you know, the hospitality industry. This idea that, you know, we have folks in and we give them clean sheets and bake them cookies. And, you know, that's sort of the extent of hospitality. Um, but I think what we read here is that there's a real interplay with genuine hospitality, that, that it's not just the guest who is changed by the act of hosting, but it is the host who is impacted by the presence of the guest. And of course, that's, that's true here in Peter's vision. You know, if we see that as an act of hospitality, that Peter is impacted by, you know, hosting in his vision, I guess, <laughs> the creatures who are there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Peter too is impacted by, of course, Cornelius, by, by the, the guests who Cornelius sends and by these, this crowd who he's preaching to, you know, I think there's, like you were saying, kind of as he goes along in this passage, he's in a way, I think, convincing himself more and more that this is, um, this is the right thing to do, that, that this is God's will to, you know, expand the, the people of God to include the Gentiles until, you know, it ends at, can anyone withhold the water for baptism? So, you know, just to say here, I think there's an invitation to interact with, with creation in, um, you know, with, with both an approach, kind of a disposition of hospitality, but also specific practices of hospitality and, you know, thinking through how are we creating space in our lives, whether that is in a physical sense of, you know, creating space in a garden or in land? How are we creating space in a political sense, I think is another one, you know, engaging with each other in the world and forming social structures so that we're not just limiting it to ourselves and those like us, we're not just limiting it to humans, but that we're really thinking about how our actions, you know, make space, hospitality is making space for all of creation. Well, amen, something with regard to that sense of hospitality. You find in the full chapter, and Avery did a stupendous job um, demonstrating that. 
And as he was talking, I was contemplating about how Peter mentions that after the resurrection, uh, some of them got to eat and drink with Jesus. And so kind of sandwiched on either side of, you know, Monday, Thursday and Easter Sunday and this terror and trauma that happens is, is them eating with Jesus and in uh, and, and this kind of sense of hospitality. And when he commented about how uh, the host is changed as well as the guest. And then just thinking of Christ as the host and how the, the, the cosmic cataclysmic change of whatever the heck the resurrection is. I mean, 2000 years later and we're all still like, oh. um, and, uh, but seeing that kind of piece that's even, if, if we run with that idea that we get to be hosts that are changed by including this kind of greater guest list. And if we're gonna talk about you know, as Wilson kind of made uh, sure with regards to uh, re-examining our Protestant notions of salvation and sin, which I am all for. I'm a bad Protestant. I am protesting the Protestants. <laughs> but you kind of have that sense then that happens, okay, if you're going to talk about the forgiveness of sin, then let's, let's re-examine our ideas of sin. And we can certainly re-examine our ideas of sin now. Um, and, and I think most of the people who are listening to this are quite comfortable with speaking of sin in that kind of, you know, much more universal uh, communal kind of way as opposed to the individualistic kind of things. But still, those in the church need to hear this kind of piece. And in the middle of this passage this, this, uh, that's in this incredible chapter that has Peter himself moving more to a sense of a universalism as is being interpreted, at least in our little group. Um, then that forgiveness of sin, if we're going to accept it, is that same idea that allows us to, uh, William Sloan Coffin had a, a, an Easter sermon title one time, Like Him We Rise. Hmm. And um, I don't remember the sermon at all. I just like the title. And, uh, but this idea of like Him We Rise and, and, and opening up our own tables to, uh, to others, to the fullness of creation. Um, in an effort then to be transformed as the host and to transform the guests and the ways that we have not succeeded in that gets to be our forgiveness of sins. But if we're going to speak of forgiveness of sin, still is there that transformative quality, that, that uh, movement towards sanctification and glorification that allows us to be recreated ourselves, to rise like him in such a fashion that when we have this new table where all are welcome, where creation itself is welcome, um, that we recognize that we haven't always done that well. And that's the very forgiveness that we seek so that we can go about trying again in a way that might actually lead to life. And if we're going to speak of being witnesses, like Peter is speaking, like we're witnesses to this, we have to speak as being witnesses to this, as though we ourselves have been transformed. So if we're going to talk about where you know, God inviting us to interact with creation, as those who recognize that we're in need of forgiveness because we've done a piss poor job at it. Am I allowed to say that? It's yeah. too late. And, and, and as opposed to fretting over the piss poor job we've done to accept that we've been forgiven for it, but recognize that we've been forgiven and called for a purpose. To, uh, to exist now with all of this creation in a way that we might actually do something that symbols justice and kindness and live hum with humility with it. it. It really makes me think about the hospitality that the church, the church is, the congregations I've been a part of, also often seem to think that they're showing on Easter, right? And so mm. 
Yeah, so, so Easter, the congregations I have been a part of is often, um, you know, it's the time where people come who don't normally come to church. And so the church service is very saccharine, right? So if it's, if it's a hospitality industry, it's like the free breakfast at a hotel where the eggs maybe are kind of runny or overcooked and, you know, and the oatmeal is, is gruel. And it's like, that's, you know, and those are your best options. And, and so, yeah, so, I mean, and, and you know, we already went over this earlier. I, I don't stand in the pulpit every Sunday. <laughs> I'm not trying to, you know, uh, hurl rocks at anybody. Um, but I do wonder what kind of hospitality is being demonstrated um, by when the doors are open on Easter. But, but part of the answer for that for me has been displacing uh, worship as the center and only place where, you know, church takes place. And so I think a lot of what we need to do is look for Easter elsewhere. But yeah. Um, I'm guessing we're going to get into that. No, no, no. I, I think that's that's a, that's a that's a really good. It's a good segue. It's a good segue into into what is the call for the church that's coming from this passage. And I think, I think you've you've already given us two really good pieces. One is to, um, you know, I actually I actually think of it when you think of it. Uh, you were talking about putting out the running eggs and the, and the and the gross oatmeal. Um, I actually kind of feel like it's more like we're just putting out candy on the buffet and hoping that like you'll you'll just keep coming to church because we we have candy here um, instead of actually giving something that's nutritious. Well, except the uh, candies uh, like almond joys and worthy. <laughs> like, who's this even for? So we know what candy not to give Wilson. Um, <laughs> I love almond joys. So I'll take Wilson's almond joys. But like it's true, and I don't know about anybody else. Being a, a Sunday, Sunday, Sunday preacher, that idea of Sunday is always coming and, and that experience of it with dread as opposed to with anything else. You know, it's uh, we do serve a lot of candy in, in, in church and, and, and we do so because we're terrified of it. ending, And we think that candy is what will bring people. And it'll come for a little while, but it's 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 not deep. It just gives you cavities. It doesn't give you any kind of nutrition. You just end up feeling bad after a while. And uh, I can't wait to hear what you're about to say with regards to all this, Wilson, because it's true. Like, how does our preaching move us as a church to say, okay, we're gathering as a fellowship for the sake of worship? which again comes from the old English for worthy ship. Like this, this, this creator is worthy of our, of our praise and adulation and whatever else. But the, the exception, uh, the exception, the, the, the acceptance of the invitation to go before the throne of grace or the Lord of song or whatever. The hell. I mean, especially with Easter, it must be. Uh, transformative and if you get the people who only come on easter and again we sacrament we certainly make it sacrament because we're, we're hoping they might actually come before christmas again well, we have one chance now with someone to actually give them a gospel that is not a gospel of non-effect but a gospel that certainly has some kind of semblance that can truly be a thing that is hopeful for this world which in my understanding is the only way that it's true and, uh, and if the church is already dying, can we at least allow it to die with dignity by being honest to itself? And um, so stop trying to save something with the fake gospel and, and let it die with a real gospel so that when it's resurrected itself, it might resemble something that's more like life than what the Protestant movement has been for 
the last 150 years at least just kind of yeah let's let's do something interesting i mean you know my, my question from that too is you know why would someone choose to return to the church if the church is not offering some sort of counter performance to the gospel that they're hearing in the world mm. you know if they show up on easter because it's it's a cultural tradition why would they be compelled to go back anytime before christmas if they're not hearing something that is different from what they hear every day of their lives. So, you know, perhaps even from a practical perspective, the, the church has sort of worked itself into a knot on this, thinking that by, by baptizing the, the gospel of, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, inter-consumerism, inter, you know, partisanship, whatever that is, that that is what people want. But there's plenty of those gospels out in the world. Anyone can get that where they want. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The gospel they're reading here from Peter. Um, you know, I believe, I hope that if people hear that, then they will want to return. Or if they don't want to return, then, you know, like Eric was saying, the dignity of the church is, is still intact. I'm proud of myself because, uh, you know, in... The last two conversations, I have not yet invoked Wendell Berry, um, but uh, I'm going to break that now. <laughs> so maybe this this will be my my quote: is I can only invoke Wendell Berry once every every three weeks or something. But you know, what would it look like for us to preach on resurrection as a practice? So you know, in the Matt Farmer Manifesto. One of the lines in that is practice resurrection. So what if we are not just recipients of the good news of resurrection or, you know, the hope of resurrection in our own lives or, you know, in the life of creation, but what if we're active participants, partners even with God and with Christ and the resurrection hope? And then what does that call us to on a practical level? What are you know, the daily actions that we can take to practice resurrection. It's totally in the passage as well, that kind of way uh, that Avery described. I mean, if you just kind of go again with, if we're going to practice resurrection, what's it mean to be uh, a witness? Um, what's it mean to have faithful testimony? Um, as, as Peter's giving here, what's it mean to practice this? And, and I mean, especially if we take Acts as a whole. Acts as a whole is filled with many resurrections over and over and over again. The fullness of what Luke is doing in Acts is demonstrating those resurrections over and over and over again. And uh, I mean, Peter has experienced one himself when he, you know, was thought to be dead and escapes from prison there and ends up knocking on the door and, 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 and they think he's a ghost. It's a mini resurrection. And, and so to take that idea of practicing resurrection and then to recognize that the fullness of the book of Acts is exactly that and, and telling us to be witnesses is, is, is a stunning way of moving that. So I, I live in uh, my hometown. I, I go to the church I grew up in. And so I think I might have an idea of maybe some of the practices of the Easter Christians, right? So, and I, but I think what they're doing is they're practicing nostalgia and like, when I go back to that church, you know, my dad passed away years and years ago, but you know, he went to that church as an elder, sang in the choir. Sometimes when I'm at that church and the song and the songs are right, my dad is sitting next to me, right? And and I think that there's something really powerful about that. And I think that 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 
that there is that that kind of verticality in time is something that people, especially lay people, experience in church. And I think that there's a lot of power there. But I guess it, the, the hope would be that the church could harness that power so that it wasn't nostalgia, but so that it was resurrection. So that these kind of experiences of feeling a deep connection to to love people who are gone and even to worlds who are gone, right? To when, when you can kind of plug into that connection, there's power there, but it often gets kind of short-circuited because it's not connected into, you know, these, these we, we lack these experiences of family and connection and continuity and place in our lives because of empire, right? And that this is something that has beset us you know, <laughs> for centuries and has been intensified and is part of what's going on with the climate crisis and is part of why trying to fight the climate crisis is like a fever dream where we just can't figure out how to get together and do anything. It's because we've, we've lost so many of these lines of connection. And so the church could be a place where like you tap into that power and then you start to give it some shape and some direction. But in, in that, and I think that would be like practicing resurrection. That is a profound call to the church to resist practicing nostalgia and begin practicing resurrection. Um, and, and, and to look at our, uh, you know, just look at the, look at the entertainment landscape of, of our culture right now and how many things are built off of nostalgia. And, and currently uh, as, as a 43 year old, nostalgia of my particular childhood um that like they're they what are what they're doing is they're repackaging everything that was cool when i was 10 and 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 turning it into something that's cool again um and, and they're having great success with it but resurrection looks like something profound looks like going to the places of the empire that are dead and the places of the empire that are dying not the place things that are being uh kept on life support by um, by feeling and sentiment, but the things that um, really are hurting and speaking life to them, um, the people who are really hurting, the nature, the world that is really hurting and speaking life to them and saying, God's not done with you yet. Um, that's a powerful place for the church to show up. You know, think about nostalgia, not only for the church, but in, you know, this moment of climate change and what some might call the Anthropocene, I think that there can be a tendency to have a nostalgia for the world as it was before, before climate change, the world as it is now, and expect that by taking action on climate, that is the world that we will return to. And there's a real danger in that because we're not going back to that world. And that also is not what resurrection hope is, right? Jesus was resurrected. He still had the holes in his hands. He still had the wounds. Jesus was not resurrected into, you know, the same person, the, you know, the same unwounded body as he was before the crucifixion. I think the same is true for the church, you know, whatever that, you know, pre-wounded church is for you as a child uh, you know, for me growing up in my Baptist church, there's no returning to that. But through the death and resurrection of, you know, our faith, of our experience in the church, through the death and resurrection of the world, you know, something, something new is coming, something new, new is here. And I think 
inviting that in and, uh, and, and seeing the beauty in that. I think that's, that's what resurrection is about. Our next reading is Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. For I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inherit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So, Garrett, um, where's creation? Where is it not really right? I mean, like, <laughs> like uh, w- when I chose this one to like look at, and then read the questions again, I was like, oh damn. Um, and and I don't want to say very much to be totally. Yeah, Garrett chose the easy one. Says, <laughs> like, I, I I'd rather just kind of have a conversation off uh, with whomever about this because I mean, I think the moment we look at this, each one of us is like, damn. Um, where's God in creation? Recreating it uh, based off everything we just said as well, too, um, you know, with this idea of, of resurrection and, and newness and, and how the wounds are still there. But uh, as Avery said, we can't go back to the church that we, we used to have. Um, that church is, is dead. And uh, but what's coming up is what's new. And, and that's lovely. And even like we can't go back to the way the world was before the climate change and, and the catastrophe that's going on right now. If we God willing and we actually get our stuff together, if we attempt to mitigate the destruction, if we attempt to change our own ways, uh, the beauty of this passage initially is just it has it gets to be new. It has to be new everything changes. There's pieces of things that don't make a lick of sense in the way that we understand the world right now. Um, and simultaneously, this is a, what, third Isaiah, but this is already a vision that was part of first Isaiah. So we're looking at something 250 years later that is, uh, it's, it's almost recapitulating the vision of Isaiah 11, um, which has very similar language. And, 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 you're, and you're doing these, these things that are in the fullness of time from before the destruction of the Northern Kingdom by the Assyrian Empire to, to already coming back from exile from the Babylonians. And so it's a common theme, this, this, this new creation. And let's be totally honest, no one is preaching this on Easter Sunday, not a soul. No one's going to go to Isaiah and talk Easter Sunday, um, even though I think we should. Um, 
because it reminds us that whatever resurrection hope that we're talking about, whatever Jesus does, whatever God does through the Christ in this moment, whatever this peace is, this newness, this way that God refuses to abandon the fullness of creation that we see in the resurrection. I mean, the fullness of creation is being affected. Now, granted, uh, we haven't talked about John yet, but I imagine Wilson will be talking about how Mary thinks that she found the gardener. And, um, and so here's the gardener, like having like broken out of the tomb, doing the gardener's work. And what that gardener's work is, is envisioned most clearly and adequately in Isaiah 65. So if someone really wants to go about having some kind of super green folk, and not just green, look at the focus of justice. And I'm not even answering your question, Derek. I'm just doing them all four at once. Like, look at the focus of justice in the midst of this. People who have not been able to like eat what they're growing are now able to eat what they grow. Uh, infants will not be dying before their time. Like it's this sense of this universal equality, universal peace, the fullness of creation is bound up within it all. Um, it's, it's stunning. And it's one of the most beautiful things we can possibly imagine on Easter as we're gonna talk about resurrection. So we move away from that idea of resurrection being this sweet kind of like, I've been saved for heaven and I don't have anything to worry about on this earth anymore. No, the recognition is we get to, oh, it's like that uh, hymn. Uh, what's, there's, a, there's a spirit in the air. Does anyone know that hymn? There's a spirit in the air. Um, God, what's the second verse? How's it go? How's it go? How's it go? How's it go? Uh, lose your shyness, find your tongue, tell the world what God has done. God in Christ has come to stay. Live tomorrow's life today. I think that's it, right? Live tomorrow's life today. If we're going to talk about the resurrection, creating some kind of tomorrow, if this is the vision of tomorrow that Isaiah is giving us, which is this, again, like if you can't get excited about it, I know we're Protestants and, and I'm Presbyterian, which means we're the frozen chosen. Like, but like, if we can't be thought out on resurrection day a little bit, if we can't recognize that we've been made for something new and now here is the vision of something new. And we're like, well, that's, that's God's vision for the future. Live tomorrow's life today. If we're going to live the resurrection, if we're going to attempt to discover ways in which we get to be a benefit in this world to allow this creation that we've been gifted with, which the fullness of the biblical narrative is God wants us as co-workers in creation. It starts in Genesis. And by the time you get to the end of Revelation, it's finally what God had always wanted it to be. And smack dab somewhere in the middle of the Bible is Isaiah saying the exact same thing. And for some reason or another, the people who came up with the lectionary thought it was a good idea that we read it today. And we need this vision, this vision whereby like violence disappears, where justice is the way of the world, where all the things that are wrong are being made fixed. And now we are invited to live into a 2,500 year old vision with a 2,000 year old resurrection so that we might experience that tomorrow that was a tomorrow of antiquity that's still of a tomorrow of now but begin to live it today. Realize eschatology at its finest. Let's actually encourage people not just to be like, oh, I put flowers in a cross and I feel like I do. Oh, I'm so happy about that. But no, like here's my brand new vision for reality. In the middle of a chaotic times, whereby these verses are all speaking to chaotic people. I mean, whether, you know, you have Mary dealing with everything that she's dealing in John's gospel. You have Peter who's in the middle of, uh, you know, 
Judea going through all these fascinating times, but during the Roman Empire, you have all of this context in the New Testament of being saturated by an empire that is beginning to persecute the people. And they have these senses of injustice and they see the ways of the world not working. And somehow or another, we've managed to wash all of that out so that we can give again this gospel that's just in an effort to tell people they've been saved from hell. But let's be honest, we've turned the world into hell. And if we're going to talk about being saved from hell, let's at least look at the vision that God gave Isaiah twice over in Isaiah, fullness of the vision for the whole book. There's no way to see the resurrection as an isolated incident of God not doing exactly what the divine intention had been from the beginning. And Isaiah being thrown into the mix of it is forcing us to see the divine intention being made manifest and inviting us to participate in it. Live tomorrow's life today. I don't know. Is that even a resurrection hymn? I have no idea, but it is. It should be. If it's not, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna follow Peter's lead here to be um, improvisational. Garrett has, I think, given us a compelling reason why someone should preach this text on Easter Sunday. Avery Wilson, why should someone actually preach this text, particularly someone who is looking at the scripture? through the lens of climate change and climate justice, why should someone who's maybe on the fence about preaching this on Easter Sunday preach this text on Easter Sunday? I think let, let's accept it as, as a given in the scenario that, that whoever is preaching has decided that they want to preach on practicing resurrection, that a resurrection is an active practice. I think the next place to look about what it, what it looks like to practice resurrection is right here. Because what we see here in this new creation is not, again, not God's people as recipients of, you know, God, God's new creation, um, as recipients of the, the recreation and the resurrection um, that is possible after the destruction of empire, but people who are actively working and building in really specific ways. I think that's what's so compelling about this passage is, is the specificity of it. And like Eric was saying, the, the intersectionality of it too, that, that specifically, you know, building houses and living in the houses that you build, planting vineyards and eating the fruit that you plant. I think just the final image here of they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, you know, this this holy mountain of of all of God's creation and, you know, perhaps evoking, you know, um, for me, this, this, this passage both evokes you know, Genesis and, and you know, the, the beauty of Eden and everything working together, but also evokes um, revelation in that God is dwelling with the mortals here, that in this passage, we read in vo- verse 19, God is rejoicing with God's people. God is finding God's home among mortals, and the people are participating in the work of resurrection and the work of recreation with God. So if you're looking for specific practices, and, and again, these are practices we can do today, right? Like that's the beat of this list that was written, I don't know, several thousand years ago. I don't remember when Isaiah 3 was written or third Isaiah, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's still the fundamentals of what it means to, you know, live well on this, on this earth. For me, Isaiah is kind of um, the hermeneutical key of, of the scriptures. Um, so I have, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how much I could say that's intelligible because it's so um, central for me. And it was it was a long time ago. I was working on um, First Corinthians, 
And, uh, and, and I kept on drilling down in, those, in, in some of the passages that Paul was citing um, and going back and reading Isaiah and reading it in context. So Paul's using this uh, rhetorical device called metalepsis. And so going back and, and, and looking back at this wider context brought to life for me a lot of what was going on in 1 Corinthians. So then I had like kind of a similar insight, like, wait a second, what if, what if instead of just again and again and again talking about the Genesis passages, what if kind of, uh, you know, this, this creation care, eco-justice movement, what if it was actually, it, 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 we should be starting and stopping with, with Isaiah? And, and I really feel, I mean, and, and I think that Isaiah is, is wonderfully concrete and wonderfully poetic, right? wonderfully creation-centered and wonderfully justice-centered, right? So that, so, so that we don't have all these kind of divisions. And, and I really feel like Isaiah is kind of like, this is definitely a dated reference, but my, my, my wife and I were watching Game of Thrones a long time ago as it came out by each season, right? And hadn't read any of the books. And, obvious, and honestly, found it a little confusing here and there, but there was enough action to keep up. But there's like this whole thing behind Game of Thrones called Robert's Rebellion, where like these these very specific things happen, right? And if and if you understand that somehow, like if you eventually kind of nerd out and look at it on on the internet, or you read the books, or you just piece it together, then like all these different things make sense, right? I think Isaiah is basically like that kind of like little sinner that we're, when you're reading the scriptures, like if if you don't see that vision then it doesn't quite fit together. And there's all these little stories and you're like, I, I think I kind of know what that's about, but not really. I think Isaiah is just kind of, there's, there's the vision. It, and then not the, not, and again, it's not a simple vision. It's a poetic one. It's over full. It's huge. But I think it kind of makes other stuff creational and justice centered and real and something you can kind of engage in and practice. When I talk to people about why I've started doing the Food and Faith podcast and why why this interest in food um, has emerged in my life, one of the things that I talk about is an understanding that kind of hit me that all of the justice issues that I cared about had a food component. And you know, Wilson and Avery, we've we've talked about this before, but but then I look at I look at Isaiah sixty five. And I, I particularly go to build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Um, should not build another and another inhabit. They should not plant and another eat. And I think about our food system in this country, both now and historically. And we have historically been a nation where, where we eat what another has planted where we live, where another has built. And what justice looks like, um, and, and, and that understanding of food, of everything that I care about having a food component, the, 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 end, uh, the end thrust of that is that food justice is just justice. Because um, justice is you build and you get to live there. You plant and you get to eat. And, and not that you plant and you get cents on the dollar for what's, what's about to be sold that you've harvested, not you plant and that, your, that generations of your descendants are forced to live in ghettos and slums and, and in substandard housing and have substandard schooling and be over-policed. 
that this is what justice looks like. And this is what a new creation looks like. This is what the world on the other side of the resurrection is supposed to look like. And so when the kingdom of God is being ushered in by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the seed that is being planted for the vision of this new world. And, and this is actually one place where the animal imagery, I actually think, is, is more about humans. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. I actually think that this is more about those who have been historically the predatory and those who have historically been the prey. And, 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 and this, is, this is the one place where I think that this is where creation actually becomes more about um, about humanity than about the actual images of animals. And so I think that if you are, are preaching Easter uh, or, or if you're, you're preaching Easter and you're trying to give a compelling explanation for what the import of the resurrection is for, for modern life, it is this passage that is giving us that vision, that is giving us that image of why the so what of the resurrection. And so I would strongly encourage if you are, if you are preaching this Easter Sunday to consider throwing Isaiah 65 into the mix, because one, people aren't hearing it enough. They've heard the gospel passages. They've heard them a bunch of times and not saying that that's that's uh you know that they've lost any power by by repetition but they've lost some power by repetition and isaiah 65 has not been heard enough um and if we're actually talking about what it means to live out i I, you've both you've all said it if we're actually talking about what it means to live out resurrection isaiah 65 is telling us exactly what how to do that what is resurrection really how can we save the resurrection from the way it's been treated as some type of mundane absurdity that is only esoterically inclined so that there's some kind of practical application whereby it allows for the transformation of the community that listens to the resurrection to become witnesses in the world in such a fashion that they are living the vision that God has always intended for creation in the here and now because they have the wherewithal of doing it. Like, and especially too, as we speak of in the context of empire, like Jesus was destroyed by the empire and the empire ultimately did not have any kind of power with which to keep him destroyed. And so as we contemplate all the ways that we can't do anything, that we feel like we're powerless in the face of what is there, that we simply don't have the wherewithal or the ability of any kind to do some kind of transformation, is this symbol of the resurrection, which isn't simply some kind of hope in eternal life, is it's, I mean, again, Jesus was a body. Um, Like the body was important. And they didn't recognize him, even though like he had the images of these things. People were contemplating, like, oh, who is it? Like, uh, constantly confused as to who it is, whether it's Mary and seeing the gardener or the two on the road to Emmaus and uh, walking along. Like, it was something new. How can we thereby as a church become unrecognizable as well, except by 
putting ourselves next to the vision of Isaiah that God has for this kind of creation that is in fact just. We, again, there's no longer predator and prey where people are allowed to have just, just, just justice that is again, food justice and that kind of way of things. And it's totally and completely there. And even if we were to, and you're right, the, the, the sheep and the wolf here are certainly about humanity, but we can continue to play too in that necessary way that God invokes the fullness of creation to help us discover how our own humanity needs to be true humanity. Because when we begin to look at ourselves by saying, hey, here's some sheep and here's some wolves, how can there be a time or a lion sheep? How can there be a time whereby we actually sit together and there's peace on this kind of Mount Zion? How can it begin to be made manifest in our individual churches? How can we stop celebrating the resurrection as something that brings us? And again, we have this kind of celebratory moment, but instead be terrified as the initial disciples were terrified on Resurrection Sunday because the fullness of the way they understood creation no longer worked. Like we go into our churches thinking we understand creation and that we can't do anything about it. And those first disciples were like, no, nothing makes any sense anymore. Uh, We've told the story in a way that it means something to us personally, but we fail to recognize that it changes up the totality of the universe. And the change up of the totality of the universe that we get to participate in It's still this vision that just, I mean, don't you kind of want to dance with it and uh, like, and, and maybe even kind of make love with it and come to this kind of new way of being that uh, happens when, when he, and it's just, it's joyous. Like, like was said, God is rejoicing with the people that something new has been done. And how much time do we come to church and, and, and we pretend to be joyous in an effort to give people the, the opiate of the masses so that they can go back into a broken world and for a week, hopefully not be saturated by despair because they got some fake joy. Instead of like, here is the new thing that can happen. Here is the new thing that is happening. Here is the absurdity of resurrection. Here is the absurdity of new creation. Here is what we are being invited to participate in. And it utterly transforms the cosmos, not just our individual sordid little lives that allow us to think that we have some kind of salvation. This is a salvation for the fullness of creation. And that is worthy of God's joy. Not just our little kind of hope that like, hey, that's one more for heaven. No, here's the fullness of what God loves being recreated so that it is no longer in pain. And no empire can stop that, even through death. And the joy of resurrection and Good Friday and the whole mess of things is the power of the empire was put on full display. And the only power the state holds over any of us is the power to take our lives. And if that power is taken away, as the resurrection claims that it is, then we can live into this vision here and now and begin to help God recreate the whole thing, which I think is just stunning. This passage is, it's, it's delectable. It's just, it's delicious. I, I want to consume it in, in the most beautiful sense. I want to live in it. Yeah, that's, that's resonating with me. I, I also just wanted to, to zoom in here on verse 23. Um, and I'm not a parent. I, I do not have kids. And, you know, it's kind of a constant question for me as to whether my wife and I will choose to have kids. Uh, and I think that's common for a lot of 
people my age, millennials and younger. But I want to ask for the parents here, which I, what is it like for you to read verse 23? They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. What, what does it mean for you to read that in the midst of climate catastrophe? This is a solid, beautiful question. Um, it's beautiful only because it's terrible, though. It's beautiful because it's honest. And uh, and again, I, I think a couple of weeks ago, I, I made a comment of some study um, that was done about the the uh, millennial and Zs with regards to uh, something that 40% of the ones uh, asked in 10 different industrialized nations have no intentions of having kids because they don't want to bring them into this world. And uh, I remember, uh, shortly after my son was born, and he's my firstborn, um, I, uh, I I was up late one night and watched some episode of television that he was like ten ways the world can end, and um, and by the time I was done with that hour of television, I was just depressed. Um, I was like, "What have I done bringing uh, life into this world that will end?" And it will. I, at some point in time, this too gets to end. And I have to live into hope. And, and so this is for me, and I only mean it for me. And I'm not, I'm not offering it to anybody else. And if anyone listens to this and finds that it's easy to judge what I'm about to say, I'm sure you're right. I had kids. And was that the best reason? Why did I? I don't know. Maybe just because it was, uh, I wanted to be stereotypically the way that I, I thought life was supposed to be. Or maybe I thought I was trying to honor this idea of be fruitful and multiply. Or maybe I have no idea. What kids have given me is a renewed love of the world because I have to love the world better because now these little ones that I, and I know that like, I would love to be at a place of universal compassion and universal love. I'm not, I'm, I'm not that strong. I'm not that wise. Um, I'm not that able. But what kids have given me are um, a wider sense of having to love the world because now it's their home as well. And I have to protect their home. And I very much feel like they were born into a world where, as to quote it again, um, perhaps my wife has bore children for calamity. Um, because there's certainly a, a calamity of the way of the world. And... I'm struggling against the culture that I was indoctrinated with and had the sense that I have to have more and more and more a bigger house. And my parents had more acclimation of wealth, more, 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 more. And trying to make sure that I do as little as possible of trying to, or let me change that up. Let me make that positive. I need to do as much as possible is to not indoctrinate my own children into that. Because the calamity that they will experience is the culture of our moment. Our culture is a culture of death. When Nietzsche said, you know, God is dead, um, the brilliant, he wasn't the first to say it, of course, but he was the most famous to say it. And, 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 and someone like Nikolai Berdyaev might say he didn't mean that God is dead. He meant the God of theology is dead. Um, and, and it's true, though, and the God of the church, the Protestant church, especially, which is the one that I know, the way that we've worshipped this God 
is also dead. And so we have to have a resurrected God that is the kind of fullness of things. And I have bore children for calamity of this culture and of this moment, um, and it will die. And I ponder if I'll see its full death in my lifetime, or if my children will, or if I have grandchildren, if they will. But certainly, they will witness a death that we are all having to acknowledge is just the truth of things. And for some reason or another, I have now had children in the midst of this. And how then do I prepare myself and them and love creation in such a fashion whereby they might be able to say, yes, this is we've been born for children of calamity. But how can there then by thereby be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well that still get to exist in the middle of calamity? So it's Isaiah is offering me in that context, this still realized eschatology. This ability to have a belief and a joy in an actual resurrection, not the one whereby I'm simply lifted up for heaven. And I keep saying that because that's the way that people who come to church for Christmas and Easter continually think about it. It's the most simple way to do it. But how do we give them something real in this moment? And, and to, the only way to give people something real is sometimes to preach the monstrosity. And so maybe to be like, Again, how much do we feel like our children are being children for calamity? And now we need even more to kind of live into this. So I, I think it would force any parent to take it honestly. Um, and, and although I, I'm always afraid too, the church has become so individualistic in so many popular um, uses of it, that people have no desire to move past their individualism, even to love their children. But uh, it forces us to do it. It forces us to do it. I, I, I don't have a way out of what I'm saying, so I'll just stop talking. This, this is something I'm, uh, you know, I guess living through, but also uh, writing about right now. So I, I don't know how to give a concise answer. I mean, I, I think that to what Garrett was saying, I think a lot of, a lot of the fear of the future for a parent of my age um, I think is is dealing with the what like we were saying that dealing with the death of a certain world, right? So that the is dealing with the happiness scripts that had animated my life and what I thought the future was supposed to be about, which were actually it turns out they were terrible, but they're also you know kind of woven into my heart. And so like what what I thought was supposed to be happiness, that's not an option for my kids. The future is different, right? And so there's all this messiness at least my experience as a parent with, with thinking about the future before I even get to the real part, right? So the, the real horrors that might come with, with climate change. Um, I don't know, I, I, I have too much to say here, so probably not much to say that's um, coherent, but I, I do think that, that the, the vision of Isaiah is a vision of, that builds on the, the kind of intimate particular love that comes from parenting. But I think that's part of what Donna Haraway calls the work of the future, which is making kin, right? So, so I think, I don't know. So there's all kinds of specific things that I think parents are thinking about here. But I, I think that, you know, the, the call of Isaiah is to, you know, kind of transform what we thought family was, what we thought those bonds are about, what our hopes for should be for that. And to, to live into this kind of broader kinship where, you know, we have, we, we see all of creation as 
part of our household, where we see other people as, as family? It, it's, it's, it's such a good question that there's not a good answer. <laughs> In retrospect, having children is one of the most hopeful acts that I have been a part of. There is in raising my children something that I identify, which is an intensified version of the thing that causes me to garden. It is to nurture life. Um, It is to participate in co-creating with God. And my first wife and I, um, we were in a space where we weren't sure that we could have kids and then um my my wife got pregnant with thomas our our firstborn and i didn't know how much it meant um to me until it actually happened um and and having children has revealed like i i don't actually believe like I say this in full honesty and full transparency. I don't honestly believe that I knew how to love a person before I became a parent. And I think so many closed chambers of my heart were opened. And none of the metaphors about God as parent meant anything to me until I became a parent. And so in that way, I... I think, you know, and kind of connecting and tying this together with the Isaiah passage, I think we have that being a parent is an act of hope and it's an act of faith because what if our children are the children who create the world where the lion lays down with the lamb? What if our children are the children that create the world where people get to eat from what they've planted? What if our children or our grandchildren or great great grandchildren or whatever are the ones who recognize new creation? I already see in my own kids a sensitivity, an awareness, a compassion that I never had at their age. And and while I I I can be as as cynical as the next person about the state of the world, I do see a more compassionate generation being being raised because a lot of us have recognized the dead end that we were sold and so we're finding a better way for our children again kind of stand with my feet in two world of believing that yeah my children were the ones who were born for calamity and also believe that they can be a part of creating that world where the next generation or the generation after are not the ones born for calamity. It's a tough space to live. It's a tough, it's a tough tightrope to walk. Um, Parenting is the hardest thing anyone does. I think that's one more reason for people to preach Isaiah 65 this Easter, because people are struggling with that question. And again, I think your generation and younger are really wrestling with the ethical question of bringing new humans into this world. And that's something that the church should be talking about.
John 20, verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, they turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, the the places of creation that really kind of jump out to me are the dawn, right? So, the, part of the rhythms of creation, right? It's, it's also the first day of the week, so there's a strong sense of new creation. There's a tomb, right, which is a hole in the earth. Um, there's the absence of a dead body. There's Mary's tears, right? And tears are a, a very animal response, right? And a very mm. uniquely human response, but an animal response. Um, and then there's also Jesus as the gardener. So, so to kind of try and tie some of these together, I you know, th- th- think that, you know, I, part of my reading is, is often about reading Jesus as against empire. I think that's a lot of what, re- that's where resurrection images come from, right? So in, so like some of the first ones, like in Daniel, right? That's the, these issues of resurrection are about, you know, the, the power of God and the people of God overcoming even the, the efforts of empire to extinguish them through death. All right. So, so what we have here, um, I think, in, in this passage from John, I think as, is, is especially makes sense to me if, if it's inflected with what goes on in John 16, where Jesus is talking about something that will come. Right. And so he says that the, the, the empire will rejoice and then it will mourn. You will mourn and then you will rejoice. It'll be like a woman giving birth. Right. So the tears of the birth pain will give into the to the joy of new life. Right? And so, so what the empire makes a tomb, right? The new creation makes into a womb. And so there is a new creation that comes out of the earth, right? And what comes out of the earth? A gardener, right? And what does that gardener do? He And it's it's not a gardener, though, that's interacting with some generic character, Adam, right? Like, he's not interacting with the human. He's interacting with a very specific person, Mary of Magdalene, right? 
of Magdala, you know, of, of that specific town, right? And, and, and he commissions Mary to become a disciple again and to go forth and to share the word of this new creation. Um, and, and, so, and so I think that, and so that's how God is acting in this. And I think that the, the call for us to kind of act in this then is, is to follow Mary, right? And to follow what is actually though the practice that again is set out in, in John 16, tears and then joy. Right. What is what does Mary do? What makes her available and attentive to seeing this new birth that comes out of what the empire has made death? What does she do? She, she goes back and she honors and remembers and mourns and cries. And, and that practice of holding on to hope and holding on and, and, and actually going through that practice of mourning is part of the condition that makes her the disciple that's actually there the disciple that gets commissioned, the disciple that actually sees that Jesus is the gardener. And, and, and so Jesus is a gardener come to, you know, uh, to care for as, as, as has already come up, right? So that, and as Derek has already tied together, right? The, the tomb into a womb um, is, is a place of care, of love, giving, drawing on those experiences of parenthood. But then so is, that's part of what a gardener is. A gardener is a caretaker, a lover, someone who, loves the earth, but in and through that love brings nourishment to others. So that was, you know, just in the, in the sake of time, maybe too fast, but kind of running through it a little bit. You know, I've always been, at least with John's version of the resurrection, caught up with that notion of a gardener. Um, it was always fascinating to me. Uh, once I kind of discovered it, or was told about it. I don't know what came first. And um, you have this piece, though, too, uh, just gardening. And, and and why did you think him the gardener? And what does that even mean? And can we, and there's those who would go back to Eden, or, you know, we can just have that sense of the cultivation of this new moment, this new day, this, this new week, this new creation, this, this new whatever. And, um, and, and, and if this is the gardener who's now commissioning Mary to go forth and, and share this kind of peace, I'm simultaneously uh, telling her, don't hold on to me. Um, so, yeah, like, don't hold on to our ideas. Don't hold on to every, I actually kind of love that. Uh, don't hold on to what has come before. Don't hold on to these things that we want to go back to. Uh, we, we can't make America great again. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That wasn't part at all. Um, we, we can't make anything great again. How are we going to uh, take our own commissioning, go forth into the world for one who's been commissioned by the gardener because we had the wherewithal of grieving what was lost? Um, and, and, and grief. Well, thank you for taking time with that, Wilson, too. I, that's the part that I, I wasn't, I, I've never meshed Mary's grief um, like that in that moment and, and the sheer necessity of grieving and, and to bring grief into Easter and to allow Easter its, its room to grieve. So even while by, whereby she wants to grab onto Jesus, hold on to that notion, she's not allowed to, she's still being forced herself to be made new in this moment. 
And, um, but that doesn't mean that she can't grieve what's lost. Uh, so what's grief with, but love with nowhere to go? What's grief, but um, a, a sense of holding on to hope. And then when her, her grief gets to be reborn as this idea that Jesus is, is back, um, instead she gets to be reborn as someone who's new again. And so it's still this kind of invitation for us to be made new, us to be reborn and us to be a part of whatever Jesus is doing as this gardener that she presupposed him to be, whereby we are cultivating, we are producing, we are taking time to give TLC to uh, the world as it is, because um, we're still called to exist in this world as it is, even though uh, we get to grieve it and it's not the same anymore. Yeah, no, that, was, that was good. Just. Um... You know, Wilson, you talking about the tomb as a part of creation is uh, is really interesting to me. It has me thinking about, you know, again, the seasonality of Easter, kind of Easter being this moment of moving from winter into spring, uh, and that a tomb is essentially a hole in the ground, that, uh, you know, it's a burrow, and that, you know, not only is Jesus being resurrected in this moment, but there's a lot of resurrection happening in the world that the, you know, the creatures who are hibernating in their burrows, the the plants that were, you know, buried underground in their, you know, hibernating form are starting to emerge. So, um, yeah, just compelled by by this image of, of, of a tomb turning into a womb. And that being true, not only for the hole in the ground that Jesus emerged from, but the holes in the ground that are you know, in my front and backyard right now <laughs> that all kinds of creatures are coming out of. Like, it's not lost on me uh, as we sit here, four men talking about this passage. And um, as, you know, hopefully as, as um, you know, grateful that Leah's voice has been a part of this project and as hopefully as this project develops, more female voices will be a part of it. Um, they were invited, I promise. What it means and for Mary to be the carrier of the message of new life. Um, and, you know, there is a, there is a way in which Mary, the mother of Jesus birthed him and a way in which Mary in this scene, once again, is the carrier of new life into the world. I love that idea that the tomb becomes a womb for this new life, that there's, there's a beautiful, there's beautiful symmetry. There's, it, it even rhymes in our language, which is wonderful, but there is this, there's this portal through which new life is coming into the world and it's come to the world through this, through pain. It's come to the world through, through agony. It's come through the world through death and through suffering. Um, and and again, four dudes sitting here talking about this, but uh, but I but I think that there needs to be a, a, a recognition of the importance of the feminine in creation and the importance of the feminine in new creation. And when we as the church discount and overlook and degrade the feminine both in creation and in new creation 
we miss out on a lot of what God is doing. And here, Mary's being given the most important assignment. Like of, of this day, if there is someone who has the most vital job, it is Mary to go back to the men who are, by the way, cowering and relay to them the message that what Jesus said was true, that new life has come into the world, that resurrection has happened, and that there is a new reality for all of us now. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident that Mary is, is in this position. And again, mea culpa or whatever on, on the fact that this, this is a group of dudes talking about this right now. But, um, but, I, but I do want to highlight, I do want to just take this moment to say that like the first evangelist, the first, uh, the first preacher of the gospel, the first witness of the resurrection, the first experiencer of, of new life, is is a woman and and that again that's not an accident that's that is that is the way that life enters this world and that is the way that we need to be honoring the feminine in our midst i like that and even if I mean, if someone uses that piece, and again, and then it becomes a huge justice piece, of course, and it should be. And and God knows each one of us, even though we may be a bunch of men, um, we're we're probably different. We're we're not the evangelical church folk who are like ah, no, we we want to include that at least, so we have some kind of benefit from. But we need to play with why that is, and thereby demonstrate some kind of humility. Is a man preaching? Like to recognize the humility of uh, I'm not the first one. And then also maybe even to go to the cross uh, in, you know, in, in every gospel, but John's and in John, you have this nebulous beloved disciple who's still at the cross, but none of the male disciples are there. None of the male disciples are the ones going to the tomb to anoint the body. Um, why are the women at the cross and, and the men aren't? Well, the men are terrified and the women aren't perhaps for the same reason that Mary goes to the tomb or the Marys or whatever, whether it's two or three or many or one, um, depending on which gospel you're choosing, it's, it's women. And it's women who are around the cross. Uh, they don't get to share the same fear as us men because they already knew something of the power of resurrection before the resurrection happened. Because in the presence of the Christ, their personhood was resurrected. And we get to recognize that personhood being resurrected simultaneously through the utilization of Mary in this case, becoming the first preacher of the gospel of resurrection. And, um, and, and we just, we need to say that over and over again, especially in church, because we need to be honest with the church's history and the church's responsibility for the very culture that has allowed, I mean, again, I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant upper middle class heterosexual male in America. Like it's the easiest life in the world. And, um, and, and how easily then people who look like me um, begin to say, oh, like, oh, it's hard on all of us or whatever the heck, heck else. 
Like, no, this is that invitation that anyone who looks like me gets to demonstrate that the justice issues that are going on during the resurrection are, are these incredible gender issues, these incredible class issues, these incredible racial issues, these incredible issues whereby, again, we all get to be included in a way that, let's try this instead. I'm a Presbyterian. When I go about doing communion, and in, in my denomination, I'm the only one allowed to say the words of institution. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, but we still have a sense that there's a priestly quality to one who's gone through seminary training and education. Um, those who are allowed to serve communion um, in my denomination are those who are ordained as elders or deacons, or occasionally the session could uh, vote for someone who is a, a church member in good standing to, to do that as well. Um, what happens if we actually believe in the priesthood of all believers or something of that nature that we see demonstrated in this passage and, and include children saying the words of institution? Um, I know that in my denomination, somebody's head might explode, but simultaneously, like, have you ever heard a little voice begin saying, this is Christ's body broken for you? And they get to have a spot around this table. Um, Jesus gave a spot to everyone around this table and allowed their humanity, their personhood, their abilities, and their sense of call to be honored in a church that has over and over and over again dishonored and disavowed. And to take this passage and to, it's something simple, but and so obvious to, to us that like, Derek, you'll apologize four or five times while you're talking about how there's just four men talking about this. Um, but it's so unobvious to the church still, uh, by and large, uh, even us forward thinking types where uh, you know, we just, it needs to be said over and over again. And what can we do in a liturgical moment utilizing this passage to live into that as well. I, I think it, it's advantageous to attempt to try. Yeah, and, and Mary's name um, just by itself should or could set off all kinds of intersectional flags, right? So Mary's female, get that from the name Mary, she's from Magdala, um, which is has another name, which is, is basically literally processed Fishville, right? So it's, so it's this town on the Sea of Galilee um, and so there's, and, and, and fishermen and the, the industry of, of making this, this fish sauce that they did there, um, you know, fishermen are kind of on the bottom rung of the kind of hierarchical totem pole, right? So there's class issues you just hear in her name. And then Magdala is also, it's in Galilee, right? And so that, I don't know, it's, it's I, I think that in some of the literature it's become less popular to follow the kind of like Elizondo line of, you know, Galilee as this place of like hybrid people, but also of kind of marginalized people in relationship to Shia. But anyway, so in her name, but just race, class, gender, um, things go, go all off, right? So it's, it is, Mary is being chosen and all of those things are layered there in her name. Um, but but in, in thinking about, you know, how then Easter is celebrated, I mean, I, I guess kind of, kind of along these lines, um, you know, I, I, I have, it's been a while since I've gone to a regular Easter service in a in a church, um, but the the most the, the best Easter service I've been a part of um, was a few years ago. So I live in this multi-family um, household, 
And my, my wife put together this little liturgy that we went up at, at, at dawn. We went to a, a graveyard that's nearby and we read the liturgy there as, as the sun came up. Um, and it was, I, I felt like it was powerful both because you know it was, was kind of beautiful, but I was also tired and irritated and I felt weird, right? Like we were just kind of like, what were we doing in a graveyard? <laughs> we felt like conspicuously weird. I mean, not that I felt really, I mean, I, I'm conspicuously weird in this town all the time. So this was not like a unique experience, but I wonder if there's like something to learn from there, right? So where maybe the, the Easter experience, right? This courage that Mary has and this, this kind of maybe outsider status that she has, like maybe there's ways to, to meet that. And there's also ways to meet that with following the rhythm of the earth. Thank you for listening. My hope is to launch this project as a regular podcast this fall, so be on the lookout at foodandfaith.org for upcoming announcements. Thanks again to Garrett Andrew, Wilson Dickinson, Avery Lamb, and Leah Shade for their participation in this experiment. If you'd like to be involved in the show this fall, or if you have any feedback on the pilot episodes, you can reach me at foodandfaithpodcast at gmail.com. You can also support the work of this project and the Food and Faith Podcast at patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast. Every little bit helps. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the fall.